Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the next hour here on WFMU. The Magic Factory, Freeform Station of the Nation from Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. Happy to be here. Happy you're here, whether live or in the future. It's going to be a great show. I wanted to do this uh, for the last few weeks. I've had this idea, reading the news, that there are a lot of news items recently that have to do with past shows. Well, to be fair, a lot of tech news, I mean almost every tech news item that I come across that I want to read on the show has some connection to a past show because we're almost to six years. This is episode 283, uh, not counting the guest host episode. So I've covered a lot of topics and everything relates to everything else. (laughs) However, I have come up with a number of updates to past shows from recent news items that I genuinely have been wanting to share with you and I did not have a, a good venue to share them in. Because generally, as you know, if you've been listening for a while, I will have one guest as the uh, spotlight interview that takes up most of the show. And then if I'm lucky, I may have a few minutes at the end of the show to talk about something a little bit different from the, the, the focus of the interview. And here I have, how many do I have here? I'm looking at the playlist at WFMU.org. You can find it by clicking playlists and comments. I have one, two, three, four. I have at least two, three, four, five. I have five different items in recent news that merit some discussion with you, the listeners. And they have to do with mostly recent, they connect to mostly recent episodes on Tectonic, uh, and so what I'm going to do this evening is I'm going to I'm going to play the original an excerpt of the original show, and then I'm going to give you the update, and then going to tell you what I think about it. And you know, like a lot of these shows I do, it's an experiment. So you have to tell me in the comment board what you think, or you can send me an email afterward. I'm at mark at wfmu.org. Tell me what you think of this. If you like it, maybe it's something we do a couple times a year. We'll see. Uh, But first, there's another excerpt I wanted to start the show with because here I've given my own description of the uh, update show, the update on past shows show. But there was someone else this past week who gave a much better description of tonight's show. And it was the great Sue Braun. Sue Braun runs the show, Sue's Thing with a Hook, um... And it's a show, this is a show on the mothership that airs Thursdays, 12 noon to 3 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, you should listen to it. And it's, it's a great show. And Sue is a great host. She's a great DJ. And on one of her mic breaks on her most recent show, this is from August 17. Uh, so just a few days ago, last Thursday, uh, she gave a great, as I said, uh, really perfect description of tonight's show and i'm going to play that with you it's just about a minute long let me cue this up so again this is sue Braun on sue's thing with the, with a hook from august 17 just uh, four days ago here's what she said monday august 21st from 6 to 7 p.m on tectonic with mark hurst um updates on past shows this is like when dr phil goes back to visit Uh, some of his worst guests to give an update. You know, out-of-control teenager. Let's see how she's doing. Addicted twin sisters. Let's visit them, see how they're doing. No, this is a little different because it's Tectonic with Mark Hurst. So Monday, 6 to 7, people and projects covered on past Tectonic shows have been in the news. Developing their stories further on the next Tectonic, Mark Hurst updates listeners on what's been happening recently with WeWork, the Zuckerberg-Musk cage match, Zoom spying on you, and the failing math 
ability of chatjipete, which means cat I farted in French. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Sue, for that excellent and accurate description of this evening's show, updates on past shows. And as she said, it's, um, it's a little bit like revisiting some past guests on a certain talk show and seeing what they're up to these days. And that's a good intro to our very first story. Again, all these uh, stories that I'm going to reference this evening, you can go to the playlist at WFMU.org, click Playlists and Comments. You can follow along. You can even, even read ahead, and you can see, you can get a sneak peek on the subsequent stories to come in this hour. If you're listening in the future to a podcast or archive, just go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm, and find the August 21st, 2023 show, and click the playlist, and you can see all the links I've put there. Okay, so first, as promised, I wanted to say something about WeWork. Now, back um, two years ago, August 16 of 2021, I had Elliot Brown on the show talking about his, at that time, new book that he had co-authored called The Cult of We. I really enjoyed that book. It was a story about the rise and fall of the company called WeWork and its founder, Adam Newman. Well, I should say the rise of Adam Newman. There was never a fall. And uh, I'm going to give you the update in a second. But first, I want to play a little excerpt from that show. Again, just a minute and a half long when Elliot Brown and I were talking about WeWork and Adam Newman. Here it is. What was the outcome with Adam Newman and his wife, Rebecca? I mean, Elliot, we have all heard since we were kids that crime does not pay. So let's hear about the comeuppance that was visited upon Adam Newman. What happened? <laughs> um, it, it, I, one of the most recent headlines about Adam is that he bought a $40 million house in, in Miami. So the, the short version here is he left a billionaire. He that's a billionaire with a B. Yes. In, in all like entities he controls and, you know, him ha took out or, or still have in WeWork stock uh, about $2.1 billion. Now, now, some of that a, a minority goes to his co-founder um, and, and some of it has been spent on things like surf coaches and hairdressers and, and, and whatnot and, you know, eight homes. But this was a story of a company torching investors' money. You know, WeWork has combined losses of over $11 billion. And the man at the helm of that leaving a billionaire. Uh, so how, how do you do that? You, you know, a lot of it traces back to this notion where Adam controlled the company and had founder control. And so he was able to sell stock as WeWork stock was rising, even though a lot of other people couldn't sell stock in, in, in a lot of these rounds. He was able to get favorable terms for loans from banks. And then at the end of the day, when the, the board finally does decide he needs to go uh, because he can't raise money from anyone and he's toxic, then he essentially demands a ransom to go away. That amounted to hundreds of millions of dollars uh, just, just to go away. And that again was Elliot Brown uh, speaking. We were doing an interview on his new book at the time called The Cult of We. That was on the August 16, 2021 Tectonic. And as you heard, uh, Elliot and I were both a, a little surprised, I guess, that WeWork had fallen so far down and Adam Newman, the founder CEO, had walked away as a billionaire, leaving a, just a smoking ruin in, in his wake. Now, what the, the press around WeWork, the press, the, the, the press releases coming out of WeWork after that moment when Newman departed... They were all saying, well, well, don't worry, we're going to get ourselves a new CEO, we're going to rebuild, we'll, we'll have um, slightly less insane metrics and promises, and we're going we're gonna to cut down on the hype. We're going to try to be an actual real estate business that rents office space, and you'll see, we'll be back, and, uh, and, and don't worry. Well, what happened next is they got the CEO, they tried doing office rentals, they tried doing this and that, and let's, let's fast forward to just uh, a, few, a few days ago on August 10, 2023, Wall Street on Parade, a site that always gives great coverage on the finance and tech industries, 
ran a story with the following headline. WeWork's stock imploded to 13 cents yesterday. Its cult master, Adam Newman, cashed out years ago and is a billionaire. <laughs> and uh, in the story, it says that office space company we warned our readers about in 2019, WeWork, it collapsed to 13 cents a share yesterday. And as of this morning, Forbes puts Adam Newman's wealth at $2.2 billion. And they go on to say, the purpose of Wall Street is to be an efficient allocator of capital and uh, to help with innovation, job creation, and so on. Unfortunately, we find ourselves writing more and more about cults. And they, they mention a few, but one of them that I've talked about on a past show is FTX, which was the cult slash con man company uh, run by Sam Bankman Freed that also employed, uh, imploded. We find ourselves writing more and more about cults that are trading on the New York Stock Exchange. Something is deeply, deeply wrong with the structure of Wall Street and the watchdogs that are supposed to be policing it. And I, I think that's, that's great commentary on this Adam Newman WeWork situation with all of the promise, all of the hype that WeWork had launched with, um, you would think that the founder would ride on the success or failure of his creation. And what happened instead is that WeWork fell and it fell so far. I mean, it's just astounding that this, the shares are worth 13 cents. The company is basically worthless at this point. And Adam Newman continues to enjoy life as a billionaire, probably a multi-billionaire, 2.2 billion if Forbes is correct. And as Wall Street on Parade says, that there is something deeply wrong with our system when companies that are actually cults get hyped up to that extent. Now, there was one other story that I have not linked here uh, on the playlist that I found somewhere that said that WeWork could be one of the, the newest meme stocks. Have you heard about meme stocks? going hand in hand with what Wall Street on Parade was saying about something deeply wrong in our, our uh, operation of our so-called free market. This, this New York Stock Exchange is supposed to be funding innovation and job creation. Instead, what you see are internet forums that all decide to put their money into a failing company. I think there was a trucking company called Yellow, if, I, if I'm doing this from memory, but I believe that company had announced that it was near bankruptcy and there was an internet form i don't know if this was on reddit or elsewhere and uh, the users decided they would they would all coordinate and synchronize and put in their investments onto yellow and that made the stock skyrocket i don't know how many hundreds several hundred percent increase in this basically bankrupt company so you you see companies that are failing uh, get resurrected because of a kind of a, a, a lulls joke on internet forums, sub, Reddit, subreddits, or what have you. And the founders, if they cash out correctly at just the right moment, can walk away as billionaires. There is, as I will echo what Wall Street on Parade said, there is something very wrong in our markets when that's what's happening. Because God knows there are a lot of other investments that it's kind of like what I talked with Pat Garofalo about uh, in in that recent show. He was saying, you know, rather than giving several hundred million dollars in tax breaks to Amazon or your local sports team owner, how about the citizens elect legislate legislators and regulators that will actually allocate those funds for things like schools, hospitals, food banks, uh, homeless services, and so on. But no, we've Somehow our system has allocated $2 billion to Adam Newman, who walked away from a, an overhyped, uh, some would say fraudulent company that now lies in a smoking ruin at 13 cents a share. That's story number one. And it's gonna, the rest of the evening is going to be just like this, friends. Just, <laughs> just set them up and knock them down. Okay, let's move on to the next one. This one is a little more fun. I will, I will uh, promise you this is not quite as dark. This is from the July 24, 2023 Tectonic. So just a few weeks ago, I was talking with Josh O'Kane about his book Sideways, about how citizens in Toronto 
kicked out Google when Google came to town trying to set up a surveillance city. And uh, I still, I still uh, give kudos to Toronto and all those citizens there for doing that. But at the end of the episode, that was one of the, the shows when I had a few extra minutes at the end to say something about a completely different topic. And it was about this, what had been announced that could happen was a cage match between Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. The idea was that these two tech titans, billionaires, it's the, the rumble of billionaires. I don't know. There were various terms. And uh, station manager Ken Friedman had a good one on his show. You can go back and listen to it. But the idea was that they were going to go into the octagon, which is this, this uh, I think, mixed martial arts arena in Las Vegas. And, of course, it was going to be all for charity so you could feel good about it. And it would rehabilitate both of their images that, that they're in, in such dire need for. Uh, but I was – and it, it, there was getting so much press. When is it going to happen? Where is it going to happen? How are they training? Who has the height advantage? Who has the weight advantage? What, what martial art is each one of them going to choose? And just the press was just giving this so much attention. Here's what I said on the July 2024 – sorry, try that again – on the July 24, 2023 tectonic. I need to say one thing about this – Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, cage match. I don't think the match is going to happen. That's my prediction. I think Mark Zuckerberg earnestly wants this to happen because he's been practicing so hard and his image is getting burnished and people are beginning to forget how he incited genocide in Myanmar and he got written up by the United Nations for a platform that helped bring about genocide. And he's just about to get people to start liking him a little bit because he's perceived as less awful than Elon Musk. So he really, 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 really wants to get in that octagon. Elon Musk has no interest in fighting Mark Zuckerberg, is my prediction. He just wants the attention, like always. As long as he can keep your attention, he comes out on top. And if the match is scheduled, he will milk it for all the attention and PR and then he will cancel, pull out, give some weird excuse at the very last second, and do the next outrageous thing so that he remains in our attention. Okay, and that was the prediction. And if you heard some rumbling in the background, that was the great Dave Mandel at, uh, on July 24, bringing the record cart into Studio A. <laughs> so I had some comments for that afterwards. But anyway, um, my prediction was that Musk would come up with a weird excuse and back out. And what do you know? What do you know? On August 13, so just uh, a little over a week ago, Mr. Musk in posts uh, on X or Twitter or whatever it's called said that the date of the fight was, quote, in flux because he needed an MRI scan of his neck and back. And that was a that was an article uh, from the New York Times called Zuckerberg says it's time to move on from cage fight with Musk. So, it, I mean, right, right on schedule as the interest was growing and the date was, uh, was, was drawing near for them to set a date and set a location. Musk suddenly, suddenly realized that he actually needs an MRI and he can't fight. I can't fight right now. I, I, I need to get an MRI scan. And okay. So there's his, there's his pathetic excuse. And then what did I say next was that he was going to do something crazy to grab even more attention. And this was from Forbes the very next day, August 14, because everyone started making fun of him for backing out. That was a completely predictable. I'm hardly an oracle here, friends. I mean, you may have predicted the same thing. It's not hard to predict where this guy is going to go. But um, anyway, the very next day after he backed out, uh, this is from Forbes on August 14. In latest antics, Musk says he's going to drive to Zuckerberg's house for fight. Uh, and the article says Musk posted that he was going to have a car take him to the Meta CEO's house and live stream the journey to see if Zuckerberg would fight him, a stunt that Zuckerberg's reps quickly shot down. Exactly on script. I mean, first you back out with a lame excuse, and then the very next day you come up with this crazy idea that, again, it, it, it doesn't matter if everyone likes it. it. It doesn't matter. It only matters if it grabs attention. So whether you like it, you're one of the Musk cult members, 
or you're everybody else who looks at this guy is just what a pathetic uh, performance of a man-child here. Of course he's going to do something crazy, but it, it generates attention. Either way, he wins. He's just a, a, a black hole of attention getting. And um, who was it? Is it Mike from Brooklyn on the comment board said something very cogent just now. He said, uh, uh, all due respect, but I hope, <laughs> I hope this segment about Musk and Zuckerberg's cage match is brief. I've already spent more time and key clicks on it than it warrants. And I, I agree. I mean, that, that's sort of my whole point here is that this stuff is, is totally superficial and nonsensical. The reason I'm covering it at all is to try to, uh, to show you that this is what passes for tech journalism a lot of times out there that people will spend inordinate amounts of time, as I said, wondering where is the match going to take place? Who has the advantage? Oh, Musk said he has a special move. Let's all talk about that. And we have to, we have to step back when we see things like this and understand that the script is, number one, Musk wants attention and he'll do anything to get it. He's not actually going to do anything that would require any kind of uh, actual physical training. Or, he, you know, he, he never meant that he was going to wrestle Mark Zuckerberg. He was only doing it for attention. That's his whole game. So he's very predictable. And number two, on Zuckerberg's side, he loves it if there's anything that makes him look a little bit less horrible than he has shown himself to be from his actions of the last 10 years. And so he's just lapping this up that someone looks worse than he does. And uh, anyway, there's your update. Mike from Brooklyn, I hope that wasn't too long. Let's move on to the third one, shall we? Let's go on to uh, Google's incognito mode. And um, this requires a little extra context. This is a little more substantial of a topic. Um, this comes from, I'm gonna play you an excerpt from the November 7, 2022 show. So just, what is that, nine months ago, I guess. I was speaking with Carissa Velis, uh, who wrote a book that I have widely recommended. I recommend it on the show. I've recommended it to friends. It's called Privacy is Power. It's just a great introduction to how and why the tech companies are surveilling you, why they are destroying your privacy, and how that confers an inordinate amount of power on those companies and why we need to resist. And she even has some sections in the back about how to resist uh, both on an individual and a collective level. I mean, it's, it's basically everything that I've tried to, it was not everything in Tectonic, but everything in that book it, uh, relates to things that I've tried to say on this show over the years. So if, if you want a really good introductory uh, volume, go get Privacy is Power by Carissa Velis. Anyway, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is going to um, tie into recent news about Google and Google incognito mode. But first, I want to play you this excerpt uh, of Carissa talking about the power that comes from being able to surveil people and destroy their privacy. This is from the November 7, 2022 episode of Tectonic. We have known for a long, long time that there is a very important relationship between knowledge and power. Francis Bacon argued that the more knowledge you have on someone, the more power you have over them. Therefore, the more somebody knows about you, the more vulnerable you are to them. And it is this. I think this is a very intuitive insight. But the contrary is also true. The more power you have, the more knowledge you have. And it's not only that power gains you access to knowledge. So the power that a company has gains access to knowledge in the ways that they collect that data, for instance. But it's also that when you have enough power, you get to decide what counts as knowledge. And that's very interesting because when a company like Google collects a lot of data on a person and then on the basis of that data labels that person as one thing or another, whether it's like this person is having a midlife crisis or it's prone to depression or, or whatever it is, they get to decide what counts as knowledge about you. And that knowledge might be wrong. It might be out of context. It might be outdated. And you don't get a say in it. You don't even get to know what they have decided counts as knowledge about you. And that, again, was Carissa Velis, uh, author of Privacy is Power, during our interview last November uh, 2022, on, on uh, November 7. And... 
as you heard her say, uh, the, the companies that are surveilling you, uh, they get to decide what is important based on what they analyze about your data. So they can come up with whatever conclusions they want from the surveillance data. It may be accurate, it may be inaccurate, and then they get to, to decide what actions to take on that basis. Uh, this is an ongoing theme, of course, of Tectonic. It's not simply um, Google that does it. There, Google was the pioneer of uh, what Shoshana Zuboff coined as surveillance capitalism. Uh, Facebook was the second company to take it up, but there are, and there are now many, many, many companies that are following the same business model. But there you see Carissa describing what's behind their interest in surveillance. I've said many times, companies surveilling you are not doing it to be creepy. They're not doing it just to, uh, just to follow you around and, and see how much data for its own sake that they can get on you. They're doing it because it gives them some sort of power. And the power can be transmuted into money or different kinds of power. So it's, it's always a means to an end. It could be a power of the power of control, which also can turn into different forms of power or money. So the, the surveillance is, is not just an, a regrettable secondary effect of these companies. It's actually at the heart of their business models. They, they, the very heart of the Google engine runs on intrusive surveillance beyond your control and often beyond your knowledge, beyond your awareness, and certainly beyond your ability to ask them to stop. I mean, there, there's, if, if they surveil you and make some, draw some conclusion about you that's inaccurate, there's no way for you to change that. I mean, maybe if there's enough bad publicity that Google gets from bad information. Maybe once in a while they'll whack-a-mole some, some bad information. But for the most part, if, if, if they draw some, some faulty conclusion about you, you have no access to that and you have no right of appeal. So when I, when I talk to you about uh, things that come off of surveillance, which I'm going to talk to you about incognito mode here in a second, this comes not just as a, again, it's not just a uh, some sort of a, a, an idle complaint or some superficial uh, criticism of Google. This, anything that has to do with their surveillance business goes to the very heart of Google's business model. The only reason this company exists is to act as a surveillance machine. Do you understand that? Google is a giant global surveillance machine. And they use that to do just what Carissa Velis was talking about. They use that surveillance to turn it into power, power over you, power over markets. Uh, this is power that is unjustly gained and it is unjustly exercised. So now we get to this feature called incognito mode. Some of you um, know about this, but I will describe it anyway. If you use the web browser called Chrome, and you should know that if you use Chrome, you're using a Google product. Chrome is the web browser, uh, the monopolistic web browser that comes off of Google. And it is capturing, I don't know how much of the browser market, I should have looked it up, but it's a, it's, it's a vast majority of all browser sessions on the internet right now are running Chrome. Uh, and there is, if you use Chrome, most people do, you might have noticed this feature called incognito mode. And if I'm remembering right, there is even some graphic, or, or at least there used to be a graphic, that looked like a, um, a cartoon spy, that it looked like a, a guy that was pulling his hat down, he had, had sunglasses, and it looks like he's, he's going in, incognito. It's a cute Google-style graphic that they often apply to some of their features and, and promotions and things. So you have this feature in Chrome called incognito mode that has an accompanying graphic that makes it look like if you use this, you will go incognito. I mean, <laughs> you can excuse people for drawing that conclusion, right? Because it's called incognito mode. So what do you think incognito mode means? That's the question. 
And this is a big question because there is a lawsuit brewing over this question. What do you think it means when you hear incognito mode? And again, I don't know if they uh, have still, if they still use that, uh, that, that spy uh, graphic. I don't use Chrome myself, so, but I suppose I could have looked, at the, looked this up. But just on the basis of the name, incognito mode, do you think that when you use Chrome in incognito mode that you have a private session? Let me put it to you differently. Do you think that when you use incognito mode that Google is not tracking you? I mean, I think it would be reasonable to expect that the answer should be yes because it's called incognito mode and Google's always going on in their press releases and blog posts that they're so concerned about privacy. Well, as it turns out, uh, Google is still tracking you. I mean, just to put it very simply, if you use incognito mode, Google is still tracking you. Uh, if, if you look at the playlist at WFMU.org, there is a link to a Verge article from August 7. The headline is, $5 billion Google lawsuit over incognito mode tracking moves a step closer to trial. And here's what the story says. The people suing Google say that Google's cookies analytics and tools in apps continued to track internet browsing activity even after users activated incognito mode in Chrome. And so there, this is a lawsuit that I want to continue to track and to uh, cover on this show because even though it's only $5 billion, which is nothing, that is nothing to Google, uh, they're really going to contest this fiercely because any any courtroom victory over Google and its unjust, probably illegal surveillance activities um, sets a precedent that opens the door for further lawsuits and could be further fines. And maybe, maybe finally our calls to finally break up companies like Google and Facebook will gain some traction. Uh, Google doesn't want to go down that road. So even though it's only $5 billion, which is nothing to the, it's like, it's like us finding a nickel on the sidewalk. I mean, it's just like $5 billion for Google. Um, they, they, they barely sneeze at that. They're going to fight it tooth and nail, but it's pretty, I mean, the, the fact is if you use incognito mode, Google continues to track you. Here's what incognito mode actually does. If you don't know, I'm going to tell you what it actually does, because in a very limited fashion, I can see a use for this feature. It shouldn't be called incognito mode, but there is a very, very narrow use case that once in a while could be helpful if you have to use Chrome, and I urge you not to use Chrome, but I know some people are in workplaces or schools. They have uh, institution-issued laptops or whatever, and Chrome is the only thing on it. So if you are in a situation where there are multiple people who each want to log into their Gmail, you know, to get their email surveilled, then uh, it's, it's kind of a pain to open up Chrome, log in, and then have to log out and then bring in the next person because, you know, Google and its Chrome is so tightly integrated into Google Google makes it kind of difficult to log someone completely out of Google and log someone else in. They want you to stay logged in all the time so they can continue to track you, surveil you, watch what you're doing, read everything that you're writing all the time. And so they, they naturally make it difficult to extract yourself. But if, if you're, let's say you're in a classroom and, I don't know, let's say one person logs into the classroom computer to get to a Google Doc and to give a presentation, let's say, to the class. And then there's student number two. It's their turn for, for a presentation. It's, it's sort of difficult to log out student number one. So it's easier if this second person can spin up their own session in a browser window that allows them to log in as themselves. That's what incognito mode actually is. It's a separate browser session that lets person number two, uh, separate from person number one, log into their Gmail or Google Docs or whatever and get in without having to log out person number one. That's it. That's all it is. What it should be called, I don't know, open up a separate surveillance session. That'd be, that has a nice ring to it. Um, they could call it surveil me too, please. 
Uh, I don't know. Surveil us three. Surveil all of us one at a time. Please, Google, surveil us intrusively without our knowledge or consent. Ah, that's kind of a long feature name, so forget it. But anyway, that's what in incognito mode actually does. Google, of course, named it incognito mode because they saw a lot of usage. And while it was deceptive, um, that the idea of being unethical has absolutely no bearing on anything within Google. They saw more growth towards a deceptive feature. And so they just ran with it. And now they're facing a $5 billion lawsuit. And they very, very much need to be defeated soundly again and again and again. And I can't wait. That's Google's incognito mode. Oh, by the way, if you were just logging in, my name is Mark Hurst. You're listening to a show called Tectonic on WFMU. And what we are doing this evening is we are updating the listeners on some past shows. I have five past shows, excerpts of past shows, to update with recent news. All in the last, uh, all in the last month, I think, are all updates that have to do with those past shows. And so, as uh, WFMU DJ Sue Braun put it at the beginning of the show, it's a little bit like Dr. Phil Going back to Pat, although I've never, I don't think I've ever seen a Dr. Phil, but I'm, I'm trusting Sue when she says Dr. Phil would go back to see past patients and see how their lives were continuing to develop in one way or another. All right, let's move on to ChatGPT. Um, or should we do Zoom? Maybe I'll skip ChatGPT. Maybe I'll do that one last. Let's do Zoom, huh? I think that'll be kind of fun. So uh, Zoom this is, I'm going to play you a little excerpt from the August 7, 2023 show. This is just from two weeks ago. I made a little offhand comment. This was during the listener question show. You, the listeners, submitted questions for me to, to answer on air. And uh, I, I went off on a little bit of a digression. I know <laughs> a shocker, but I was talking about surveillance. And it reminded me of a new story as of that week about Zoom and surveillance. And I want to play that for you now, and then I'll give you a little uh, update on Zoom. Here was what I was saying on August 7, 2023. Here is the recently added sentence in the Zoom terms and conditions. You consent to Zoom's access, use, collection, creation, modification, distribution, processing, sharing, maintenance, and storage of service-generated data for any purpose, to the extent and in the manner permitted under applicable law, including the purpose of product and service development, marketing, analytics, quality assurance, machine learning, or artificial intelligence, including the purposes of training and tuning of algorithms and models. Do you, did you hear, do you, do you see what's happening here, friends? The content of Zoom calls can now be used as input to Zoom's own AI training algorithm. The content of your Zoom call can be used to train Zoom's AI algorithm. What is the content of your Zoom call? Don't tell me you said anything that you don't want ingested by this giant Silicon Valley company. Did you say something private? I know some people have therapy sessions on Zoom. Can you imagine what people say there? Well, it goes into the AI. Did you have a private business call? Did you have a private call with your family? Goes into the AI. This is the world that we're, we're, we're entering into, friends. These companies need more data to feed into their AI engines. And they get that data from surveillance. Okay, so this is me again now live. That was, those were my comments from two weeks ago, August 7. 2023, talking about how, how people had discovered that Zoom changed its terms and conditions to say, oh, by the way, we can use the contents of your Zoom calls to train our AI. I mean, they didn't use those words, but that, that's basically what it was. And people freaked out because unlike, well, it's not really unlike. Um, I mean, Google's doing the same thing with who knows what amount of data uh, that people are using on Google services and products to train Google's own internal AI system, BARD, and I'm sure other teams have, uh, have access to people's private data as well. 
um, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Tesla, everyone, everyone is trying to grab more surveillance data. But the, the difference, I think, in Zoom is that people, I think, were not quite keyed into Zoom being part of that same Silicon Valley surveillance engine that I was talking about before. They thought when you get into a private room with friends, family, coworkers, a psychotherapist, or whoever, that Zoom, that's, maybe that's more of a protected space because all you see is their headshot talking to your headshot, and it feels very private in your little headphones, and you know you don't see anyone sitting there watching or listening. And to think that Zoom is bleeding off your voice prints, the transcripts, and everything into some AI training model really freaked people out. There was a huge public outcry, which is a little unusual in these days of surveillance for, for companies actually to shock the public with their surveillance overreach because people have just become so numbed to what's happening. Uh, people just don't even lift a finger in resistance for the most part. But with Zoom, it was different. So you know, and we've seen this many times, the only thing that gets a company's attention, well, I guess a $5 billion fine would, would barely uh, crack a little bit of attention at Google. But the thing that gets Silicon Valley companies' attention more than anything else is bad PR. They hate bad PR. And this was bad PR for Zoom because their business model was being uncovered and they never like the truth coming out about their actual activities. So Zoom immediately uh, put up a press release on their blog saying, whoa, 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 wait, 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 you totally misunderstand us. Actually, let me read you a piece from Wired, a little excerpt. This is from August 10. Zoom became a part of daily life. It needs to tell users exactly how it's using their data. That's the headline, which I agree with. Here's the excerpt from this Wired piece. As if on cue, this week Zoomed, sorry, this week Zoom released what many read as a panicked blog post, quote, clarifying what this change to its terms of service means and highlighting the opt-in process for its AI-assisted features. Then the company added to its terms of service that, quote, notwithstanding the above, Zoom will not use audio, video, or chat customer content to train our AI models without your consent. That's the key phrase there, friends, without your consent. Wired continues, but these amendments didn't assuage many of the concerns people had raised. For one thing, the choice to opt in or out can only be set at the customer level, meaning that the company you're at, the corporation, the university, the medical office that licenses Zoom makes that decision, not the individual users signed up through the license. Though individuals signing up for free Zoom accounts would presumably be able to control that for themselves. Okay, so... Let's just talk about this for one second, and then I want to get—I want to have enough time to get to this uh, ChatGPT update. But here's the thing about Zoom: Zoom got caught red-handed in the process of stealing customer data. And by the way, those—that terms of service change was made, I believe, if memory serves, I think it was made back in March. Uh, it was only posted to Hacker News a couple weeks ago. So Zoom has been making use of those that that change to terms of service since March. So for about five months, and who knows how much surveillance they were doing even before that change of uh, TOS and how much they're still doing even after the change about uh, only with your consent. The thing about consent, folks, is do you, do you know how much you've already consented to? You know, just to be, just to use, okay, so I have on the Studio A desk right here, I have a MacBook Pro. Yeah, I use Apple. I don't love Apple. In fact, I've done a show uh, I, I'm totally against Apple, but this is, this is what I use. Do you know how much I've already consented to just to use this laptop that, that presumably I own? I mean, every time you install a new operating system update from Apple, it, it, say, it has this little pop-up that says, um, I agree to the terms and conditions of this OS. Agree or decline. By the way, if you click decline, it's not like you can go through and negotiate with their lawyers a better deal. If you decline, it won't it won't work. It won't it won't install the OS. You you have a you have a metal and silicon and and uh, glass brick paperweight. 
You have to agree. That's your only choice. Same thing with phones. I have an iPhone right over here. I don't love iPhones. Looking forward to the day I can turn this into the e-waste facility. But in the meantime, I use an iPhone and I have to consent to all kinds of stuff. You think I read the whole terms and conditions? No, who has time for that? Someone, someone calculated a couple years ago how much time it would, it, it would take for an average internet user just to read all of the terms and conditions documents, all of the consent documents that they have to sign in order to use these services, the apps, the phones, the computers, the platforms, the sites, everything. We're making, we're giving consent, quote unquote. We say, yes, we agree to the terms of service. That's complete bull. We don't consent to any of it because we haven't read any of it because we don't have time to read any of it. There is no consent online. So for Zoom to make this mealy-mouthed, uh, panicked, as Wired correctly said, blog posts like, oh, no, 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 we weren't trying to, we weren't trying to steal anything. It, 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 it's because, um, uh, because we're going, we're, we're going we're gonna to launch features. You're going to love them. You're going to love them. We need to surveil. Well, no, we're not going to surveil you. We're, we have to listen in. No, that's not good. How do we say it? So they, they shut up. Uh, we have to use our enhanced data analytics services for these new features uh, so that we can create new wonderfulness for you, but only if you consent to it. The, the, the whole thing is crap. Don't believe a single word of it. And be careful what you say on Zoom, friends, because they have shown their hand. They intend to surveil you to the last syllable of your voice print. Every Zoom call from now on, you have to assume that everything that you say in your friends, families, partners, psychotherapists, everything everyone says goes straight into an AI training model. And it may, a copy may be bled off to go into your dossier that they may just package up and sell to Google. Who knows? Who knows what they may do with it? It's no different from using Gmail or Google search. I mean, they're all doing this, but now you can just add Zoom in along with them. And yes, they're gonna do it with your consent. So next time you say, I agree to the terms and conditions, yeah, you're consenting. All right, let's go on to the last one. Chat GPT, see if I can do this in, uh, what, six minutes before Dave Mano comes on with his prog rock show called It's Complicated. I'm gonna play you an excerpt from the February 6, 2023 show called Our AI-Generated Future. I talked about AI-extruded text and music, and inevitably, I had something to say about ChatGPT, this open AI product where you can say, write me a high school essay about Red Badge of Courage, and it'll kind of sort of do it, uh, spicy autocorrect-like. Here's what I said about ChatGPT. Just last week, they, they started... Um, talking online about how they're going to come out with a tool that helps people identify if ChatGPT has been used to generate a particular piece of text. In other words, if you're a teacher, you can presumably submit all of the essays from the students and go through some, uh, some, some, some magic feature at OpenAI, and it'll tell you what percentage chance it is that, that, that any given essay was generated with ChatGPT's help, either fully or in part. And there were some uh, examples that were given. And I just find it really ironic that the tool that is flooding the, the zone with, with junk is the one that is also going to be charging for access to the junk detector that allows you to detect whether their junk-making tool actually did make the junk in the junk that you are being subjected to. <laughs> okay, this is me again live. I hope that made sense. That was my comment on ChatGPT. The company is, of course, OpenAI saying they're going to launch a new feature to help you detect their own junk from all the other junk that's being created by all the other AI uh, junk fountains. But anyway, I wanted to give you an update on what's happening with ChatGPT because the shine has come off just a little bit because people have discovered that ChatGPT uh, is not working so well, and it's not completely clear why. OpenAI is not going to say exactly what it was. Of course, they don't like any publicity saying that their their uh, their showcase feature is or a platform uh, ChatGPT is not working wor very well. But I put one uh, article on. This is from the Wall Street Journal from uh, August four, and the headline is "Why ChatGPT is Getting Dumber at Basic Math." 
And indeed, what we're seeing is that uh, basic math questions are now generating incorrect results in ChatGPT. And it's possible that it's because the staff inside OpenAI is tuning the algorithm to weed out content or answers that they feel are uh, offensive in some way and could generate bad PR for OpenAI. Or it could be part of this deterioration of the model, um, the, the worst uh, output of which is called model collapse. That's the extreme version of deterioration in which these AI models, they always have to ingest enough fresh data to, um, to be able to stay relevant and kind of autocorrect their way to, to some semblance of good enough, somewhat correct answers. But the, the problem is that the companies, that's one reason, just like we talked about with Zoom, one reason these companies are surveilling you uh, left and right is because they're trying to generate enough data to feed into their AI models, not simply to build it and to launch it, but to maintain them and to keep them relevant. So ChatGPT has this vulnerability, as all of them do, which is that as the internet generally fills up with AI-generated content, the model itself cannot continue to perform at a high level because it has low-grade data that it's ingesting. Station manager Ken Friedman did a guest hosting show a few months ago where he, uh, he uh, said that it was like if you took a tape and a tape recorder and taped the tape and made a tape of that tape and made a tape of that tape, if you continually made tapes of tapes, the song that was on the tape would degrade. That's, I don't know if that's a, if I'm explaining it right, but anyway, model collapse is when these AI engines are ingesting too much of their own exhaust. And so there's your update on ChatGPT. There's one other thing that I wanted to bring up. Um, I didn't actually link this on the playlist, but there was this, and I want to say thanks to Scott Williams for this pointer. There's a, there's a piece in uh, Time Magazine Yes, it still exists, and yes, it is owned by a Silicon Valley billionaire. Uh, Time ran a piece by Simon Rich, comedy writer Simon Rich, who's written for The New Yorker, and he's, he's written for TV shows and so on. He's promoting his new book called I Am Code that features AI-generated poems, uh, and he wrote a piece called The AI Jokes That Give Me Nightmares. And this was kind of funny. He, he says that he was working with this particular AI text generator called code-DaVinci-002. And it, that he claims, I don't know how, how much these were edited, how much human assistance this got, but anyway, Simon Rich is claiming that this code-DaVinci-2 um, AI bot generated these onion-like headlines. And here they are, and all of these are, are AI-generated. Experts warn that war in Ukraine could become even more boring. AI-generated. You know, you can almost see The Onion coming out with something like that. Budget of new Batman movie swells to $200 million as director insists on using real Batman. Not sure what that means, but it's sort of amusing. Um... Story of woman who rescues shelter dog with severely matted fur will inspire you to open a new tab and visit another website. That's kind of clever. You know, so Rich claims that a chat GPT-like uh, text generator bot generated those. And if that's true, you know, this writer strike is even more important for the writers out there to, to hold the line and, um, and get better contracts that exclude AI from taking over the entire writing profession in Los Angeles and elsewhere. That's about all the time I have for this evening. I hope you have enjoyed this updates to update shows show, um, <laughs> updates to past shows show. This has been a lot of fun for me, and I believe we're going to have a featured interview. I think it's going to be a, a book interview next week, so stay tuned for that in a week. In the meantime, I want you to stay tuned for Dave Mandel, and it's complicated. You have been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM, and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you know exactly what to do. You know what to do. Avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get 
off Google. And I want to say thanks to Web Hamster Henry for suggesting the outro this evening. iPhone alarm as piano ballad by Tony Ann. And I want you to have a great week, everybody. I'll see you next time. A few more times? Sure, what the heck. What's better than one yes song? Two yes songs. One yes song played twice. Good evening and welcome. This show is called It's Complicated. I'm Dave Mandel. I'm the host. I'm here every Monday between the hours of 7 and 8 p.m. bringing you a full 60 minutes of Prague and Prague-related, Prague-adjacent, forgetting my own show description, music. Welcome aboard. And I'm going to begin... Uh, begin tonight's show with music from a brand new box set. This is going to be something from Brian Auger. Brian Auger was, is still alive, a keyboard player, English an English keyboard player who played with loads of people. was was a session musician in the '60s and uh, had a group called Trinity with Julie Driscoll. played played around a lot, 
and uh, around in the in the very early seventies, like nineteen seventy, nineteen seventy one, he started his own group called Brian Auger's Oblivion Express. And I remember vaguely in the d- distant haze, I remember hearing about that group when I was a kid, and my impression of it was that they were more of a just from the name, more of a spacey, proggy group than they were. They 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 actually weren't that much. They uh, eventually became sort of a jazz, rock, jazz, pop, funk kind of kind of group. But on their very first album, they hadn't you know fully made the transition. And actually, the the first two tracks, it's it's weird because like. You know, one third of the way through the album, they decided we're we're not gonna we're not gonna play this stuff anymore. But the first couple tracks on their first LP are are pretty proggy, with a, I would say kind of a nod to Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Brian Orger was is was is was is a keyboard player, and uh, in the early days, he played mostly Hammond organ, as you'll hear, heavy Hammond organ. This as and as I mentioned. The, there's a box set that's just out or just about to come out any day now, which is the complete works of that group, Ryan Auger's Oblivion Express, six LPs, six CDs. And this is the very first track on it. Again, this is the first piece, first track from the first album by Oblivion Express, and it's called Dragon Song. Enjoy.
That's the real thing. <laughs> from Brian Auger's Oblivion Express from their self-titled debut album, 1971. A track called Dragon Song with, I would say, in my humble opinion, I-M-H-O, a big Emerson, Lake, and Palmer influence, but still the sort of heavy blues rock that uh, was all the rage 